2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Today is Veterans Day, an observance that dates back 101 years to commemorate what at the outset was naively thought to be the war to end all wars. Later in the program, Emory University film professor Tanine Allison gives us her recommendations for movies that help us understand the impact of war on those returning to civilian life from World War 1 through Afghanistan. First, a film about another kind of battle with its own casualties. Like many things originally thought beneficial, radium proved deadly. In the 1920s, hundreds of young women working in factories were exposed to so much radium that their sites still set off Geiger counters. This story is at the heart of the film Radium Girls. Lydia Dean Pilcher is a producer and director of the film. She joins us now via Zoom. Lydia, welcome to City Lights.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here today.
2: What inspired you to tell this story?
0: I've been an environmental activist for, I would say, ever since I became a mother 25 years ago. And I had been looking for a while to find a story that would blend my passion for the environment with my storytelling career. And I had put the word out, was trying to find the right script. I I like to tell narrative feature stories. And I had heard about a script that Ginny Moeller and Brittany Shaw had written, which is this script. And I reached out, got the script. And when I read it, I was totally captivated because I loved The idea that the story of this coming of age into this kind of rude awakening of real world, you know, power politics, corporate scandal um, happened with these teenage girls and, you know, that it was one girl that had dreams of going to Hollywood, another girl wanted to go on archaeological digs in Egypt, but they were painting glow-in-the-dark watch dials in orange New Jersey in the 1920s, and everything starts to unravel when Joe's tooth falls out, and Bessie realizes that something's going on, something's wrong.
2: The lead characters in the film, Bessie and Joe our sisters, as you said, who work at the American
0: Radium Factory. Was that a real company? The real company was U.S. Radium, and we, we changed the name slightly. But it was it was a real company. The whole story is a true story. And the, ca- the court case that the girls ultimately mounted against the company is a notorious case that is still used today in arguing um, cases of toxic chemical litigation. Mm. What did the
2: factory produce that led to the women's exposure to radium?
0: Well, the American radium company or U.S. radium company was making glow-in-the-dark watch dials. And it had originally started as a phenomena for uh, soldiers and foxholes in World War I. And there were, there were a number of different luminous watch style painting factories around the country. There was one in Connecticut, one in Ottawa, Illinois. There was even one outside Athens, Georgia. And these companies were basically hiring young women, often immigrant women, to lip-point the radioactive paint onto the watch dials. It was a very um, delicate sort of precision driven process and women had been China painting for years. So it was a similar process, except this time the paint was poison.
2: So they dipped their thin brushes into the radium and then into their mouths to make the bristle was that much finer. I mean, it is so, chilling to watch that in the film. I thought it noteworthy that the company's doctor would diagnose all of the women suffering from radium poisoning with syphilis. Why did they choose that disease?
0: Well, I think we could imagine that, as uh, Catherine Wiley says in the film, that syphilis is a diagnosis that not many women would want to talk about. And that is actually how the radium poisoning was proven. You know, In real life, there were two sisters who had a third older sister who had died of reportedly syphilis. And when the girls came to meet Catherine Wiley who was head of the National Consumers League in New Jersey, she suggested that the only way to really prove the ra- that radium poisoning was happening was to exhume a body. And the, the girls were very disturbed by this idea. And in fact, just, you know, one got up and left the meeting, the other one's listening intently. But when they get home that night, they talk about it and they decide that it's something that they have to do. And indeed, it did prove that there was no syphilis. She died of radium poisoning. But
2: in fact, the doctor's diagnosis is more sinister because it's yet another way of not only silencing women, but a false accusation that certainly in that era would have carried with it a lot of shame.
0: Yeah, I think it, 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 is, it does feel like a, a predecessor to slut shaming in, in many ways. But I, I think also these women were considered to be dispensable. Because the, the real corporate scandal is that the radium company had hired researchers from Harvard University, Department of Public Health, who came and did, did their testing and their research. And they had found and proven that there was radium poisoning that was happening and that that was the cause of the girls getting sick. But they had signed these you know, non-disclosure agreements and they weren't allowed to speak about the research and the company altered the documents with the New Jersey Health Department. And so the information was buried. And I think that is really the scandal of the story, that there was wrongdoing happening and and it was with full knowledge.
2: Mm. You mentioned that this is based on a true story.
0: Were Bessie
2: and Joe based on two women in particular?
0: Yes, there are... um, some diaries that have been left behind by the Radium Girls, and one in particular that was written by Catherine Schaub, gave us a lot of insight into her personality. And you could see that she was a dreamer. She had this very sparkly personality, a vivid imagination. And she was the inspiration for the Bessie character played by Joey King. And there are many other Radium Girls who are involved in the story. So the, I think the inspiration really came from Catherine Schaub for Bessie. And then the Maggia sisters were the two sisters that had the older sister who had um, predeceased. Then there's many other characters. Catherine Wiley is, is a historic character who's an important part of the story. The Consumers League. Alice Hamilton was she was a pioneer in industrial toxicology. Arthur Roeder is a real character, um, Dr. Flynn, Dr. Marlin. The whole story essentially is based on true events that happened in Orange, New Jersey. Mm.
2: In the film, you intersperse some archival footage of the era with the narrative scenes. Would you talk about that artistic decision?
0: Yes, the writers of the the film, Ginny Moeller, who's also co-directed with me, and the other writer, Brittany Shaw, were working as archival footage researchers when they graduated from NYU Film School. And they had been working on a documentary for the History Channel. And Ginny was working on one about the Manhattan Project. Brittany was working on one for the Civil Rights Project. they had been very immersed you know, in this time period. And Ginny was the one who sort of stumbled on the story of the Radium Girls and sort of, as she tells it, wheeled her chair over to Brittany and said, you've got to see this story. But what happened was that when we you know, got ready to sort of make the movie and we were thinking about all the different elements to kind of set the stage for the time period that the Radium Girls existed in, a lot of the material that they were very familiar with from their archival research came forward. And it felt, because we were an independent film, like a really amazing idea to come up with a way to integrate the footage into the movie to give more context of the period and the time in a very you know, authentic way. So we created the character of Edda, who, as you know, came from Tulsa to the East Coast after the Tulsa race riots. And she, her, we set it up that her family owned a photography studio and she's a camera woman. And we used her perspective and her camera as a way to bring some of this footage into the story um, by showing footage as though she had filmed it at the time. And we incorporated some of the other characters, you know, who were in the movie and sort of put them into some of that footage that we shot in black and white to integrate it all into one singular style. Where did you learn to use a camera?
2: My family owned a photo studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Grew up in it.
1: why do you leave Oklahoma?
2: Um, about six and a half years ago, the police and all the deputies, they burnt down my whole neighborhood. They said a black boy attacked a white girl. My God.
1: Can't the government do something?
2: Great warplanes flew overhead, dropping fire bombs.
1: What do you mean?
2: It was the government best. More than a thousand of our homes destroyed. Why is there so much wrong in the world that no one knows about? Mm -hmm. It's easier to believe stories. They make us feel safe. Etta's experience with The Tulsa Race Massacre. And her role as a chronicler, the way she captures other examples of social injustice at the time, felt very contemporary. It almost had the feeling of how people were using cell phones in earlier months of this year during protests.
0: Yes, she was was an early documenter of all of these events. And of course, there were people filming that archival footage at the time. So when you see these signs that are bannering and protesting police brutality and you know, all these other issues that we still protest about today, it makes it quite interesting.
2: Yeah, it really feels so contemporary. The girls refer to King Tut and the pyramid several times throughout the film. Joe dreams of becoming an Egyptologist. And earlier in that decade, earlier in the time of this story, in November of nineteen twenty-two, Tut's tomb was discovered. Would you explain the connection the film makes between King Tut and exposing the truth about radium?
0: Sure. It really stems from this, you know, idea of world building. So the things things that had led up you know, to the world that the radium girls existed in. I mean, Tulsa massacre happened six years before the radium girls, but you know, Sacco and Manzetti had been happening across the river and downtown in the stock exchange in New York. And also several years before King Tut's tomb had been exhumed in Egypt. And there was a real fascination with Egyptology. And that was something that made perfect sense that our girls would be obsessed with as well. And you have these ideas of death and a goddess of truth. And I love the line in the film at the end when Joe is saying to Bessie, I mean, did you know that the book of the dead is also called the book of coming forth into light? And I think that we wanted to give this sense of history and ancestry and transcendence as we all move through our own lives. I mean, we're all only here for a short time, but there was such an incredible poetry to, you know, many translations of the Book of the Dead. The one that we used is by a writer, Normandy Ellis. And we, some of the poetry appears at, toward the end of the movie, but it gives you a sense of elevation because these were, these were girls and these were women who really stood up and used their voices and really took on things that were bigger than them. And it felt like you know we wanted, we wanted to honor that. We wanted to honor the fact that what they did was something that was accomplished with the support of many other women of the, of the, of the era because women had just gotten the right to vote not that long before the Radium Girls case arose and women wanted to use that vote. They, there was a dire need of legislation in the realm of industrialization. It was the Wild West. There were no child labor laws. There was no toxic toxic chemical laws. And these were things that women were really spearheading. And so, you know, it made a lot of sense actually when when we dug deeper that these women took on the case of the radium girls in a way that really elevated them to a national level. In some ways, it may be the reason that we actually are talking about it right now, even though we feel like it's been buried for a lot of years at the time, it was, it was considered a very notorious case, and it's very well documented because of that. Yes, um, and
2: because of that, the fact that it was notorious and had a tremendous impact, I was hoping you could talk about how the fight against American radium led to a lasting impact on um, workplace health and safety regulations. What are some of the precautions and policies we have today thanks to these heroic women?
0: Well, there have been a lot of worker safety regulations that have been put in place and a lot of toxic chemical regulations that have been in place. I mean, unfortunately, a number of them have been rolled back over the last four years, but hopefully We'll, we'll bring ourselves back to the level of progress we had achieved soon. But I would say as well that w- one of the things that I don't think people think about, but is really a big part of why their case, you know, needs to be remembered and needs to be looked back at is this toxic chemical industry creates a lot of waste. And the waste of the radium factories it happened in New Jersey, I believe. It also in the Athens uh, factory in Georgia. The waste gets used for landfill, and it was used in Montclair, New Jersey, for in concrete for sidewalks and housing foundations. And that's why the EPA has had to come in and declare these places Superfund sites for contamination cleanup. And there was groundwater that was contaminated. It was, I mean, it wasn't just the idea that these girls were dying, but this contamination was going out into our lives in ways that we actually didn't even understand until the 70s and 80s.
2: This film seems remarkably timely. After I viewed it, I thought the importance of activism. Do you think that there is a particular resonance at this moment in 2020, watching the Radium Girls?
0: Absolutely. I mean, when we made the movie, we were thinking about events like, you know, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, or the way people talk about what happens when you hold a cell phone up to your brain, you know, for hours on end. But I would say, in the COVID crisis, there's so many parallels, it's it's really haunting. You know, you think of COVID and radium as elements and things that we don't know everything about, or they didn't know everything about radium at the time. We're learning, still learning about COVID. You think about the idea that, that science is being denied and that governments are turning away from the idea of people suffering and falling sick and dying, asking the question, is it safe to go back to work? Economies are being, you know, collapsed. And all of those issues are really, you know, turning into something that requires, it really requires a major collective force to stand up to. So I think, I think the Radium Girls were really whistleblowers of their time and the women around them supported them. And I think we've, you know, we're undergoing something in our country right now where. We've seen the power of of collective voice and we can see what more we can do.
2: Director Lydia Dean Pilcher, her new film, Radium Girls, will play at the landmark Midtown Art Cinema through November 12th. It will be available for streaming on major platforms later this year. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash Combat during what we now know as World War I ended on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year. For that reason, November 11th, 1918, was regarded as the end of the war to end all wars, in November 1919, President Wilson proclaimed November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day. The holiday was renamed Veterans Day in 1954 as the so called War to End All Wars proved to be anything but. Emory University film professor Tanine Allison is a scholar of war-related cinema. She joins us now via Zoom. Tonine Allison, welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor.
2: You have a list of films for us to watch that relate to Veterans Day. Let's go chronologically, beginning with They Shall Not Grow Old.
1: So this is the film about World War I that was directed by Peter Jackson. He's known for very different films, the Lord of the Rings series and The Hobbit films. But in this film, They Shall Not Grow Old, he made a documentary about World War I, which is something he, by the way, is very fascinated with. He has one of the largest collections of World War I aircraft in the world. So he was invited by the UK's Imperial War Museum to make this film about World War I, and it was made in 2018 for the centennial of the armistice. And what he did was take documentary footage of the war from the Imperial War Museum, and he paired it with audio interviews with veterans. These veterans were recorded in the 1960s, so it's authentic footage and authentic interviews. So it's really powerful just with that. But then what made it stunning, but also controversial, is that he took that footage, he colorized it, he converted it to 3D, he added synchronized sound, and smoothed it all out with digital effects. So it's just this really spectacular transformation of this footage. It looks quite modern. You look at these faces staring out at you as just being people just like you. And you see their humanity in a new light with this processing.
2: I wondered about that because at the beginning of the film, I just felt like I was listening in on diary reminiscences. The veterans whose voices are used all indeed sound very contemporary. And I thought to myself, well, goodness, how could they be so lucid if they're all approaching 100. But it was brilliant in the way Peter Jackson used the veterans' own words essentially to craft a script for what feels like a dramatized depiction of the Great War because of what you've described about the filmmaking there were those who criticized that?
1: There were some. The veterans who, as you point out, are really the stars of this film. Many people were critical of the visual style of it, but nobody really criticized the use of the veterans' voices on the audio track. There were some who wanted those voices to be identified. So they, they just come at you know, a great pace of just one voice after the next after the next to create an overwhelming sense of consensus and so some people thought well you know maybe we could identify these voices maybe they differed more than they you know thought the same thing but um it was really the visual style that made it controversial some people thought that it went too far in making it look modern and did not adequately respect the quality of the uh, archival footage as it stood.
2: I thought it was extremely powerful. And some of what was most outstanding was the soldiers' comments about how much they felt in common with German POWs, describing the German soldiers as really very fine people, They missed their children and their families and the British soldiers who speak about how they identified with them. And the overarching theme was the futility of this war.
1: Absolutely. And that's what makes it so moving and so heartbreaking throughout is that these soldiers were suffering. And you get to hear about some of the just awful conditions. You hear about the lice You hear about the deadly mud. You hear about the conditions where they were never dry and they were trying desperately to brew tea out of petrol cans. So you hear about all of this, but then they also had sympathy with the enemy. They didn't see the enemy as demonized or as as other. They felt like they were there to do a job and that the other ones, you know, the other side was there to do a job as well. And that they were just all stuck in this tragic situation that felt pointless and meaningless and and futile.
2: In the beginning of the film, Peter Jackson captures that ridiculously naive spirit that pervaded about this will be over in a few months at most. And he even has some of them describing the early arrival on the battlefield as sort of like Christmas, and that all changes very dramatically when we get into the trenches. The fear that is conveyed in the trenches is simply stunning. You have a clip, and I was hoping you could set the scene for us.
1: Sure, this clip comes at the end of the war and what you'll hear in this clip is the voices of those interviewed veterans discussing how they felt once the armistice was announced. There was a feeling of relief and gladness, I suppose, but no celebration.
2: Uh, The staff officer shut his watch up and said, I wonder what we're all going to do next.
1: There was no demonstration of any kind, nobody said a word, everybody just slumped away. The only way we could have celebrated with regards to a liquid would have been tea, that's
2: all. It was one of the flattest moments of our lives. We just couldn't comprehend it. We had that sort of feeling that we'd been kicked out of a job. To some of us it was practically the only life we'd known. What was one going to do next? It was just like being made redundant. That was very
1: much the feeling of everyone.
0: We were thoroughly upset. We've all got no work to go to. I don't want to go back. There was no cheering, no singing.
1: We were drained of all emotion. We were too far gone, too exhausted to enjoy. it. All things come to an end, and even a drama
2: can go on too long. It didn't end with a whimper, but something very much like one. This eerie silence. One soldier described it as like a roll of thunder that just ends. And then he says, there was a feeling of relief, but no celebration. One of the flattest moments of my life.
1: Yeah, it's quite sad. They fought, they suffered through this, and then didn't even get to celebrate the end. They felt drained. They felt like, it was an anticlimax. There was no cheering. There was no celebration. It was just quiet. I thought that is such a telling story about the war that it didn't feel like we won. It just felt like a pointless exercise that didn't lead to any kind of outcome. And that the veterans themselves, the soldiers who now were facing this new future as veterans, that they didn't know what the future would hold for them, that this is all they knew and all they had been doing for the last years, and that they'd be returning home and didn't know what that would be like and didn't know how they'd be able to adjust to this new world that was unlike this strange world they'd been living in, in the trenches.
2: Two films deal with returning World War Two veterans, The Best Years of Our Lives and the much more recent film by Dee Rees, *Mudbound*. How does The Best Years of Our Lives capture the agony of returning veterans?
1: The Best Years of Our Lives is from 1946. It's directed by William Wyler. And it tells the story of three servicemen returning from the war to their hometown. They meet on a plane riding home and they face challenges readjusting to society so we have one character al played by frederick march he works at a bank and as he returns to his job he's pressured to deny loans to fellow veterans he's also shown to have a drinking problem then we have fred played by dana andrews he comes back and can't find his wife it appears that she's moved on without him She seems to like his uniform more than she likes him anymore. She doesn't like that he's unable to find a well-paying job. And then perhaps most importantly and most memorably, we have the character of Homer. Homer was played by Harold Russell. He was a real veteran of the war, a non-professional actor who lost both of his hands in an explosion and learned to use mechanical Hook prosthetics. And in the film, he plays a very similar character, another veteran who's lost his hands. But you see him in just remarkable scenes where he is adeptly signing his name, lighting matches, lighting cigarettes, using the hooks just as well as he could hands. So though there is tragedy in the in the film and how they are treated when they return, their difficulties in readjusting to society. This character in particular shows hope and how well he adjusts to this new life and he provides a model for the other characters and how well they're able to get on with their lives and adjust to the new realities.
2: We have another clip from the best years of our lives with the main character, Fred, played by the actor Dana Andrews. What's happening in this part?
1: In this part of the movie, you have one of the only acknowledgments of PTSD directly. Of course, this is not a term they would have used in the 1940s. They would have called it something like a nervous condition. But he is having in this clip a nightmare and he is calling out and clearly remembering and reliving aspects of the war that were traumatic to him. And then towards the end of the clip, you'll hear his love interest come into the room and try to comfort him and get him back to sleep. There you guys, jump!
0: Get out of there, bail out! Kodoski, Kodoski, get out of that plane! Two open, three.
1: Come on, the rest of you guys.
0: Fred! Come on, get out! Fred, wake
2: up! Kodoski! Wake up! Kodoski, she's up! Go out! Fred, Get out! Fred, wake up! Wake
0: up! Keep wording up! Just gonna hit! the out! It's all right, Fred.
1: Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep, Fred.
2: There's nothing to be afraid of. All you have to do is go to sleep. <laughs> <Poor Grace. laughs> Another aspect of the best years of our lives that's striking is the difference in class background of the returning soldiers. And this is something, once again, we'll see even more vividly in Mudbound. But what does William Wyler say about how the social class of the soldiers plays out in their return to civilian life.
1: Well, starting out as these three characters meet on a transport plane, taking them back home, they come from different backgrounds, but we don't know that yet. We just know that they have this bond, this bond of brotherhood from having served. They didn't know each other while they were serving overseas but only met on this flight, but in, you know, immediately connected with one another. When they return, they take a taxi home and you see them stop at the different homes and notice for the first time that there is a class difference. So Homer gets out first, he's in a middle-class home returning to his parents. Then Al gets out second, he's the banker. And so Fred who's left in the taxi is kind of amazed that he lives in this fancy high-rise apartment. And then when Fred returns home, we see him seeing his parents in, you know, a very low class home, something more like a shack that's by right by the train tracks. So those class divisions that seem to have been erased in the melting pot of the army, of the military bringing all people from all different walks of life together and making them equal. So those things that seemed like, equality in the military were reminded to them once they returned. They had to deal with these class differences again and struggled with it. So Al, working at the bank, has now seen the humanity of the people who would come and ask for a loan by having worked alongside soldiers of all different walks of life, and so has a a difficulty seeing and looking at at applications like a banker again. And then Fred came from a lower class background, but was making good money as a bombardier and a captain in the army. And so doesn't want to go back to his old job as a soda jerk at a pharmacy. So issues of class come back when they have to return to work, they have to find a job, and they have to go back to some of the assumptions that people have about the way that American capitalism is supposed to work. And now that they've seen this more egalitarian system in the military, they struggle in, in returning back to that.
2: Emory film professor Tonine Allison will be back with more of her recommendations for Veterans Day movies after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Lattice Choice for NPR. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with Emory film professor Tanine Allison. She's curated a list of films examining the impact of war on veterans after returning to civilian life, class and race, our center stage in Dee Reese's film Mudbound. Tanine, I think this is one of the most powerful films I have seen in recent years.
1: How would
2: you describe Mudbound?
1: I absolutely agree with you, Lois. This is just such a powerful film on so many different levels. Nightmare's always the same. I scream. But it's nothing coming out. This place. This law. We don't belong to them.
0: And I think of the farm. I think of mud. Encrusted knees and hair.
1: Our family's in trouble. You understand that. Do you? What's the worst thing you ever did?
0: You betray your own blood. You can't even see your own
2: wife is miserable. Silence. Oppression.
1: Fear. It would take an extraordinary man to beat all that. When I saw it, I wasn't even thinking of it as a veteran's story, but of course, that is at the heart of it. So Mudbound is a 2017 film by the director Dee Rees. It is set in rural Mississippi after World War II. And it tells the story of an unlikely friendship between a white veteran and a black veteran. And it shows the dangers of that friendship to both of them. But of course, there is, as you said, a class difference and a race difference. So, the white veteran, Jamie, is the brother of a man who owns a farm. And the black veteran, Ronzel, is the son of a sharecropper family that lives and works on that farm. So, their lives are intertwined. But there is, of course, a huge difference in the power dynamic and class dynamic between these two families. But as we saw in the best years of our lives, they were able to put aside these differences when they were in the military. So Jamie tells a story of how he was up in his bomber and was saved from German fighter pilots by the Red Tails. So this was a group of black pilots of fighter airplanes. And he then learned something. He learned a kind of respect that he didn't learn growing up in Mississippi for these African-American soldiers who were risking their lives for their country. And so that sets the stage for this friendship. But that friendship goes against all of the strictures and the guidelines of how to behave in Jim Crow America, and it becomes very dangerous for both of them.
2: The direction is superb. This and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Dee Reese.
1: Dee Reese is a filmmaker who was the first Black woman to be nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay for Mudbound. Her first feature film was Pariah, which I have recently taught in my class. It's a coming of age story about a Black lesbian facing her own struggles in her community and learning to to move on. Then Dee Reese directed Bessie and then Mudbound. And I think as a director on the rise, Mudbound did not get a ton of attention. It was a uh, Netflix release. But as you said, I think it's one of the most moving films that I have seen in a long time and does a good job with the historical depiction of race relations. It does not glorify it. It does not excuse it. It does tell the story of friendship, but doesn't censor the the horrors of that time period and the, and the true dangers, especially for the black family. Indeed. One
2: of the most powerful moments in Mudbound for me, was when the character of Ron the young black officer returning to this godforsaken part of Mississippi where his family lives, when he encounters the same miserable treatment in Jim Crow, 1946, that he left... He reflects on his war experience and saying, Over there, I was a liberator. And he's regarded as such, and, and he understands how it feels to be recognized with respect and for the heroism he's demonstrating. And now he's being told he's not to use the front door to enter or exit a store in his hometown.
1: It's so tragic and really speaks to the difficulties for black veterans of World War II returning and having seen freedom, having seen equality. Even though you know the army was segregated The military was segregated and, you know, obviously there was still plenty of bias in the way that the soldiers were used and the fact that they were not always on the front lines. They still got this taste of something else and they came back and did not see those freedoms and did not see that appreciation among the people of the country that they fought for. And so it was a really tragic experience, but led eventually to the civil rights movement less than 20 years later, seeing that injustice of being treated as liberators, being treated as equals overseas, and seeing very starkly that that was not how they were treated back home.
2: Black veterans and Spike Lee's Movie The Five Bloods, which just came out this year, already knew what it felt like to be unappreciated during the war. How would you assess this movie?
1: Well, this movie is a follow up to Spike Lee's The Miracle at St. Anna, which was also looking at World War II soldiers, Black World War II soldiers. And he's now telling the story of four older Vietnam veterans who are black. And in the film, they return to Vietnam, ostensibly to retrieve the buried remains of their fallen squad leader, who was played in flashbacks by Chadwick Boseman in his last film role before his death. But really, they're going back to find buried gold that they previously stole from the CIA during the war. So, This is a a wide ranging film as Spike Lee's films masterfully are. It's a range of different genres. You have elements of the heist movie, the combat movie. There are documentary sequences. It's an action film, it's a drama. But at the core of it, it's about this friendship and this bond that the four black veterans have felt since they forged that friendship in combat. And they've been connected since that time. They're reconnecting now. It's like a reunion. But they're going back to Vietnam and facing some of the consequences of their actions there and facing the ways that their lives have unfolded in different ways.
2: Spike Lee has a superb cast in The Five Bloods. I mean, it it goes from one actor to the next in... Who is affecting you the most in scene to scene? Did you feel that this movie could have been shorter?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that Spike Lee, because he can, because he's one of the best respected directors of his generation, he can do whatever he wants and, and pack it all in. And I feel like he, he does. Like If he has an idea, um, even if it is audacious, he puts it in there. But I think it allowed for a lot of complexity. So you have who I think is the star of the film, Delroy Lindo, who plays Paul. He actually plays a Trump supporter and he is looking to find this gold to improve his own life. And he feels entitled to that because of his service to his country. But then you have Jonathan Majors, who I'm very much enjoying now in Lovecraft Country on HBO. He plays his son, his estranged son, And he can't understand his dad and his dad's sympathies. And then the other veterans that we have here played by Clark Peters, Isaiah Whitlock Jr. and Norm Lewis, they all have their own political commitments, including to the Black Lives Matter movement. So it really allows you to show the complexity of this generation and the way that it intersects with the movements going on today, including Trump's America.
2: Yeah. And if we began with the condition known as shell shock in World War I, we now have come to when PTSD is the acronym used to describe the soldier's trauma and being haunted. What can you tell us about the clip we'll hear?
1: So this is a short clip in this scene. Paul, that's Delroy Lindo talks about seeing ghosts. And so he is, like in previous films we discussed, seeing and having nightmares about his past and imagining that it is still haunting him. And then you'll hear the group putting their fists together and declaring themselves the Bloods. So again, showing the bond that they had during wartime that they still have even today.
0: I see ghosts, y'all. I see. Ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen him too? Yeah. Uh, Dad come to you at night. Uh, Storm and Mom come to me damn near every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. I oh, think so. Come on.
2: Why did you include American Sniper as one of the films to watch in honor of Veterans Day?
1: I think American Sniper speaks to our current moment it's telling a story of a man, and since we're talking about race here, we can note a white man who felt an extreme commitment to combat, but then was traumatized by his experience and had difficulty returning home and readjusting, as we saw in some of the other films. It was controversial. Um, It did tend to present the war in Iraq as a black and white conflict between good guys and bad guys. Some of that comes from the memoir on which American Sniper is based. That was written by Chris Kyle. Chris Kyle was known as the most lethal sniper in US history. So some viewers, some listeners may not want to go there just because of that and because of the controversial parts of his memoir. But I do think that it speaks to the way that we are now experiencing these endless wars, the way that even a hero, a John Wayne type character like Chris Kyle is now going to therapy for his PTSD. We see that in the film and that that speaks to a kind of patriotism that is in our society now that's built around this warrior culture. This warrior culture is also built around a certain kind of white victim hero that I think is exemplified in this film.
2: Tanine, what drew you to make combat on film your specialty area?
1: I feel like war movies are often dismissed as simplistic, as propagandistic, But there's so much complexity and ambiguity in them. And I think in all of the movies we've talked about today, there is that ambiguity that you can interpret it in many different ways and have an insight into an experience that might not be your own. Now that we no longer have the draft in this country, not many of us actually serve. And we do need to understand the situation that our veterans have found themselves in so that we can make better decisions going forward about how we wage war and whether we wage war.
2: Dr. Tanine Allison is Associate Professor of Film and Media Studies at Emory University. Her list of Veterans Day films and where to watch them will be on our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in depth, long form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real?